This is the Compiling Podcast with Rob Z and Friends, where I talk to technical experts about their day-to-day work and what they do in between. For more information, visit compiling.publicgeeking.com. Thanks for listening. This is the Compiling Podcast with Rob Z and Friends. I'm Rob Z, and today we get to talk to Mike Edmondson. Mike is an author, a speaker, a very well-recognized thought leader. He's done some consulting. He's very well-known in the API and the web infrastructure space. And I don't know if you're going to pick up on this in the conversation, but I hate to admit this. I'm a little bit of a Mike Edmondson fanboy. I mean, yes, I count him as a friend. I've had many opportunities to work with him, speak with him, and and really just you know be able to like get to know him as a person. But he always leaves me, I don't know inspired and excited to just go and kind of add to my body of knowledge. So every time I get a chance to talk with him, it's it's exciting to me. And I, you're going to probably pick up a little bit on this on this particular conversation. So I just figured I'd let you know ahead of time. Um, today, we're going to talk about his latest book and dive into hypermedia, which is a topic he knows exceedingly well. Uh, what is it? How is it used? Why is it even important? But then we're going to dive into his past as a professional musician, which is quite honestly, not something I'd really had a a chance to talk to him about before. And you may be as surprised as I was to hear how related these two topics actually are. So without further ado, let's get into it. which are the only ones you can really read through because it's a cookbook. Um, yeah, really, yeah. But the thing that... Yeah, I love watching you talk because you pull... <laughs> you pull not just from like the history of computers, but the history of information. You tie it all together in a way that makes me finally get things. So like, And that's what I was getting out of the, the, first, two, uh, the first two chapters. Well, yeah. That, I mean, those, those chapters... Uh, I actually wanted to do more, but um, that's almost another book, right? Yeah. So the, the the story there there may be another book in in some future space, which is really just the stories of the information age, going going back a hundred years or more. But um, there, as you as you sort of brought up, there are also other parts of my life that sort of connect with the same ethos or the same sort of style and music is a big part of that so we'll find that out oh we're getting into this okay all right so then that in mind let's go ahead and let's just get rolling so first of all thanks for joining me uh tell everybody i know who you are not everybody else knows you are tell us about yourself who are you um well i've been uh working in the api space in particular for the last 20 years and computers in general for about the last 30 i uh, live in Kentucky with my family. I've written a lot of books, given a lot of talks, flew, flown on a lot of planes, uh, and all in the effort to learn more from, from as many people as I possibly can. And I've been very, very lucky to be able to do all of those things and enjoy it very, very much. So, so I try to give back. I try to share. And the, the main way I do that is through my talks in my books. And um, I'm just happy to be here to do the same thing again, to, to share with you and talk with you, Brad. And this is, you know... Like classic Mike Emmonson um, humility. Like everybody knows Mike. Everybody loves Mike. This is the thing about the industry. You, you go around and you mention you. You're a name that I can drop. <laughs> I have dropped oh, your name man. multiple times, just kind of like and not intentionally. Like I've just been, you know, I'll just say, well, you know, Mike Emmonson. Oh, you know, yeah, I know Mike. Yes, everybody. 
So, okay. <laughs> this the, the latest book is Restful Web APIs, Patterns and Practices Cookbook, which is available through O'Reilly. Right. Um, right. Which, you know, you talk about Restful Web API Patterns and Practices, but I mean, like, this is just a sneaky book about hypermedia, right? Yeah, it's it is a bit sneaky because it's not on the title, but it's all over every chapter, right? Yeah. So it, it's a it, it can get a little preachy, but it's the way that I have learned to see the world and learn to see connections, and not just connections for uh, ma machines, but also for people and organizations and communities. Uh, this idea of of uh, of interacting with messages and you know signaling what's what's possible next. That's how we converse. So it's really it's it, this book is a chance for me to, to kind of talk about that in a more general way rather than a very specific way. And it contains a seventy some seventy five some patterns that I've learned over time that I've been taught by lots of other people and that I've learned over time and I've collected a lot of them into this book. There were things that got left out, but this is the this is the first cut. And it's, I mean, it's full of great advice and, and fantastic amount of information to help web developers, API developers in particular, be able to take advantage and leverage hypermedia within REST. Now, having said all of this, like, I feel like we've spent the last 10, 15 years trying to teach people what REST is. We're still kind of working on hypermedia to to a some degree. Explain what what is hypermedia to you? Like, can you sum that up and, and make that easy for folks yeah. listening to best understand? Yeah. So uh, the notion of hypermedia. I, often when I'm when I'm speaking, I, I'll ask a group, "Does anybody uh, program in hypermedia?" And very few people raise their hands. And then I say, "Does anybody write HTML?" And everybody raises their hands. And I says, "There, you're programming in hypermedia." The the notion of, of hypermedia, the way it was described by Ted Nelson back in the '60s and '70s, and then implemented by Tim Berners Lee in the '80s, is this idea that you get you make a request. Like give me the list of uh, you know customers or books or whatever, and then you get that list back, and you also get instructions on what you can do next. Like there's a little filter or search box, or there's a little box to add a book, or a little link to edit a book. Those are all hints as to what to do next, and those are all hypermedia. So forms and links are are, are a hypermedia. Uh, process and then you click on those and often they have all the information you need they say you should enter these four values you should use this method at this URL so it's not written in the documentation anywhere it's actually just written in the message itself so the advantage of using more and more hypermedia especially as we connect more and more machines and we get more and more automated is that those we don't have to have everybody keep reading instructions and update their connectors the instructions can be sent in the messages, and you write applications that know how to read the instructions, and that's what a browser is. So that's kind of the world, um, the state of the world that we live in on the web. And what I'm trying to do is give people a chance to expose that because they may not think about it so much. They're just looking at the other side of HTML, mm -hmm. and then take advantage of it as much as they possibly can. And a lot of the patterns in the book you don't have to be using a hypermedia format to be able to use the pattern, to use the pagination pattern, or to use the uh, the design patterns, or to use the workflow patterns. Uh, it, hel it helps, it's handy, but it's not necessary. So even those who are not yet crazy about using this idea of hypermedia can still get a lot out of it. I think. Well, and one of the things that I found really interesting 
is, you know, we think about hypermedia as something that's like fairly new. You, you bring up HTML and the browsers and the web and all of that. But um, I mean, tr in truth, it goes back, I think it's, a, you said like a hundred years is the concept, at least as far back. And I'm, you yeah. know, the equivalent in a dead tree media world, like might be a bibliography or footnotes, like how, it, what would be kind of the, the, the analog as people are trying to build this model in their head? Yeah, the well, it's anything that's sort of meta information about the information or metadata about the data. So, yeah, you mentioned footnotes is a great example. There's a little little ind indicator of a one or a three or an A or a B, and that tells you, hey, there's more information. If you want to follow this, go find this in the index or go find this in the bibliography or find this at the bottom of the page. And that's kind of where some of that came from. Um, what was really kind of incredible is we talked about this hundred years ago. Uh, Paul Otley from Belgium had this notion as we're just getting to the notion of telephones and movies. Um, he has this notion that we can co connect all those things together so that you can call up on the telephone to some central place and have them play a movie just for you. <laughs> or you could listen on the radio to a live opera if you could just find the right channel. So he's really talking about the web. He called it the, the worldwide network in the 1920s. And it wasn't until um, Ted Nelson uh, gets together and Ted Nelson in the 60s starts thinking of, hey, we can actually overlay links on text so that that, you know, click on number one for the footnote is actually a navigational element. So uh, it took a while to get to that spot, but it all follows along. Um, there was a guy by the name of Van Eber Bush in the 1940s who had uh, been a project manager on the Manhattan atom bomb project. And you saw how people kind of riffed off each other and had reference materials when they were working as a team. And he said, if you could just make that lookup of that reference on a magical, you know, like just do it, then he kind of invented the first workstation. So that's the 1940s. So we've been working on this in steps and steps all this time. I, I do think it's worth pointing out the, the vision that we see of hypermedia today, links and forms on the web, it's not quite how it works in, uh, in uh, like, machine-to-machine -machine autonomy, there's instructions and there's, there's sort of like reading hints and so on and so forth. So the hypermedia of the next 50 years might look very, very different. In a lot of ways, chat GPT uses hypermedia. It looks at material and then reads things into it and decides what it can do next based on what, what questions you ask. So you can think of a prompt for an AI bot as a hypermedia, oh, right? Man. So there's all sorts of possibilities. So, I mean, so that kind of leads into a question I wanted to ask a little bit later, but, you know, I'm going to write into it now. The book is focused on RESTful web API patterns and practices, which, I mean, it's kind of funny. Like I said, I felt like we spent the last decade or so trying to explain what REST is. And even even though I felt like I understood that at the time, hypermedia became this thing that it wasn't actually until I listened to you a few times that I really got it. You, We were at a conference in Detroit, and you had said something like, once you understand that, like the endpoint is like the resource, but the the content is completely separate. Somehow you you got it in my head that I separated the two, and that completely changed my entire opinion of how to design and build these APIs. Well, now we're looking at GraphQL, gRPC, you know, async APIs, all this kind of stuff. Where does hypermedia fit into that? Is it still relevant? Oh, absolutely. So you think about, especially about like async APIs or or something like that. There's nothing saying that the return value you get from one of these uh, uh, streaming uh, things doesn't have a link in it. Right. Right. As soon as it has a link in it, 
now you've got you've got an opportunity for hypermedia. Now hypermedia, like just like the things we talked about in terms of footnotes, hypermedia is the meta about the data. So it might not just be a link. It might be a link plus a method. It might be a link plus a method plus arguments, right? And and it might tell you that this method is going to write brand new text, or it might tell you this method is just going to filter existing information. So there's, it's all over the place. Matter of fact, I'm working on an async API uh, uh, ebook report for O'Reilly, and we'll talk about that notion of what's inside the responses that you get. And it can help you find things and do things that you might not normally do. So there's going to be tons and tons of that. Same thing for GraphQL. Nothing's that's saying that GraphQL doesn't return a hypermedia response that tells you what you can filter next and what the schema might be or what the, what the opportunities are. Um, so there's lots and lots of work uh, in, all of, in all those realms. It's the notion of sending meta information rather than carrying it around in documentation or in code. One of the things, I think it's in this book, what you don't write in the message, you have to write in the code. Mm. Right? So the more you can get into the message, the less you have to put into the code itself. And that's a huge, that's going to be a huge advantage as we get larger and larger systems that connect over the planet or, you know, through space. There's already uh, lots of computers in space running around talking to each other. Yep. And the more and more autonomous we want them to be, they have to have the metadata available to them in order to be able to use it. And so, I mean, and yeah, I think you just brought this up. I mean, part of that metadata does include what format it's in and what they, you know, like how to read that. So, for example... JSON-LD has emerged as a best practice. It's not the only way to exchange messages, but it contains those links. But you also have this idea of having like a content type, and that content type kind of gives you an idea of like, okay, this is application JSON, but it's also got this profile that maybe is defined over here in this, oh, now I can't remember the term for it, the, in this you know, open API schema or something along those lines, right? So it's right. not just negotiation at the networking level. It's also the negotiation of how do I even do something meaningful with this data and how i mean it, it i guess my question there is you, you brought up chat gpt like how do you mm -hmm. see uh, i i'm starting to see a lot of this artificial intelligence stuff coming out as mm, adaptive programming a little bit like that because it can dynamically react it seems at least or it's getting there to um data types and stuff it hasn't seen before do you see that you know kind of winding its way into the API space in any meaningful way? Sure. I, I absolutely, I absolutely do. I think the real value of these uh, AI tools are that they take the drudgery out of things. But if you, whether you're working on Midjourney or any of the other graphical, you know, generative AIs, or you're working on the GPTs or BARD or Sydney or any of the generative text elements, what you suddenly realize is your programming language is the prompt. Mm, mm. That's a programming yeah. language, right? The, the mid-journey is a great example of this. You can say, I want an image in the style of Picasso that contains the following elements and so on and so forth. You're actually programming the engine, right? So this is, this is all that's really going to be happening. I worked on a project. Uh, I think I actually I, I worked on a project for this book. Which is, which is what I call Hyperlang CLI, a, a, a command line interface oh, for yeah. hypermedia languages. So you can program in a very simple style. I actually, I actually because I was, because I'm kind of twisted this way, <laughs> I made it look a lot like COBOL. Oh, man. But, <laughs> bring, you know, it back. Because, bring it back. Because I could. Yeah. 
because I could. Um, but the idea is you learn you learn a new language, uh, a domain-specific language. So in, in the domain-specific language I created, you say, use this form and this collection of data in memory to actually create a new customer. So I got lots of information about people and customers, and then they give me a form. Like, it's, it's a hypermedia response, so it says, here's the form fill out these fields and I can go ahead and say, okay, I'll automatically fill out these fields and I'll use the method and I'll use the URL and I'll save it. And I can write a language that doesn't know anything about URLs. It just knows that there's going to be one. doesn't know anything about methods. It just knows that there's a collection I can have. And doesn't know anything about the data, the data elements for a form. just knows that I'll be requested to fill some in. That's technically an AI bot. Yeah. Right? It's like I, I know all of these things. And if you ask me some questions and tell me what to do, I'll figure it out. So we're already there. We're already doing those kinds of things. So when we use AI today, what I don't think is a good idea is to use AI to get opinions, Mm -hmm. to use AI to tell me what to do next, to invest in something or something like that. But using AI to take the drudgery out of these invarying tasks that we do over and over again, perfectly powerful use. And that's a way to augment ourselves rather than replace people right we don't need to get rid of jobs we need to make those jobs more productive Uh, creativity problem solving even defining problems that's still very much a human thing it's not going to be something that AI generators are going to do for a very long time but they are going to be able to help solve those problems and be able to work out exactly what the details are and so on and so forth. And that's what we should be using them for. And that's really a lot of hypermedia. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, it's kind of like replacing the A for artificial for augmented, augmented intelligence, right? Because that's really what we're doing here. Augmented intelligence. I like that. I like yeah. that. Very good. That, that, that's very good. Um, the the guy who invented the mouse. Um, Not Doug Engelbart. His name is escaping. Uh, is Engelbart. Oh, he did invent the mouse. Okay. Right. Wow. Yes, he yes. Uh, Douglas Engelbart has this whole had this whole notion about augmentation of humans, and he wrote a whole bunch of material on that very same subject. And that was more than half a century ago. And that stuff is still relevant today. Well, I mean, what was it the 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 demo to, the mother of all demos? I mean, where he showed off yeah. the mouse and paddles and interactive you know console and all of that. Like, I mean, we're he still showed in off the, world. the first. He showed off the first multi-cursor editing with multiple people. He showed off picture, showed off picture in picture, video on on the screen, like you said, interaction, uh, editing, saving, source control, reversion, all those things in one 90-minute thing. Uh, it was it's an, it was an incredible incredible event and sort of set the tone for doing computer demos in the future. And that was in like 1960. I want to say 68. Yeah, I want to say it was like right about there. 68. Yeah. I want to say 65 yeah. or something early. So, I mean, okay, so this is interesting because as, look, we we see the technology constantly changing. I think AI, augmented intelligence, is freaking some people out. But, I mean, I take your point. There's always an opportunity. Well, it's not just always an opportunity. There's always going to be people who want to solve problems. And you you mentioned in the book you have a single umbrella principle through which you're (laughs) guiding all the decisions for the recipes. And I, to me, this is like the best summation of, how to build APIs, period. Leverage global reach to solve problems you haven't thought of for people you have never met. That is yep. like, that's yep. the reason you build APIs, right? That's the reason 
for me, that's the reason I do anything. That's yeah. sort of, honestly, that's sort of my life mission. My, you know, it, it, it's cast in this version, you know, as a very sort of computery, techy, uh, API kind of thing. But really, this notion of of helping somebody else solve their problem, not your problem, their problem, uh, even though you've never met them before and you may never meet them, um, is really what sort of drives the way I think about my writing and my presentations and all sorts of other things that I do. Uh, and, and yeah, I think, especially if we think about that from the computer point of view, uh, leveraging global reach is this notion of there are lots and lots of services everywhere. There are lots and lots of possibilities. Very creative people, very intelligent people all over the world that have done things, but maybe we can't reach them. Maybe we, maybe we can't find them yet. For instance, in the API world, we need much better discovery. We need better catalogs and platforms and portals and discovery to make it possible for me to find that piece of software that I really could use, but I've never met this person. She's somewhere in some other country and I don't know anything about it. Make that easier to do. That's a lot of what hypermedia and, and link, the web, initial web did. You could link to anybody, anywhere, for any reason at any time without asking for permission. I could just put a link on my page to your page and everybody who sees my stuff can get to see some of yours. That's sort of that global reach element. And then that's to solve problems you hadn't thought of. I think so much of what we do, we get caught up in the notion of what's my problem? What's my challenge? Uh, what would I like to see in a database? What would I like to see in an API? And often that's that sort of, if you build it, they will come kind of thing that doesn't always work out. Because it turns out it's not my problem that other people have. They have their problems. What is, so I ask, what is your problem? How can I build something to help you? And then. That's the tougher, the, the tougher message. Not only people you've never met today, but people you will not meet in the future. There are people today using TCP IP and HTTP and MQTT and HTML. I've never met them. This has been around for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And it's still helping me today. So they are, they are helping people they have never met, right? And that's 30, 40 years forward. So you think about all the things that we can do today that are going to affect people in the future. And that's, that's the other part of that to me. And I think the other one that didn't, doesn't quite make it into that phrase is the idea of time scales. That's another mm -hmm. thing I talk about in the book. Yeah. Uh, solving the problem today is not solving the problem in the future. Sometimes we need to think about what might happen in the future. You don't want to get uh, analysis paralysis, but you want to think enough ahead. The people who designed the email system and the HTTP protocols, they were thinking pretty far ahead. It's pretty incredible that 30 years later, we're still using these tools every single day. Sure, they got shortcomings and they can be improved, but it's pretty amazing. I mean, email is still the killer app for the internet. And, and I think a lot of things still are kind of based on that, right? And so, I mean, with that yeah. in mind, you've got a... You have this one principle that you list in there, and you talk about time scale. You mentioned there are some other principles, but these are the ones we're focusing on for this book. How do you have any advice, principles, any ideas around there for how to think about designing something that will outlast the designer in that way? Like we're talking about using email as the example, right? They didn't have hypermedia. I mean, they had the concept of hypermedia, but I don't. I mean, to my knowledge, the folks coming up with that protocol. That wasn't something they were explicitly thinking too much about. So what kind of, when, when, when approaching designing a system like this, like what should one be looking for in order to create that kind of longevity? 
Well, I tell you, the the path down this notion of of resilient design over time, which is how I think about it. Like how how do I design something that's gonna gonna hold up in five years, ten years, twenty years? Um, that path, that road, is paved with abstractions. <laughs> it turns out the way you can make this last a long time is to kind of lift up from the from the specific implementation and think of it in a more abstract way. And this is very challenging for people. Yeah. Uh, often, I don't get paid for being abstract. Right. I get paid for making sure this thing works 24-7, no matter what. I have a customer today. I have to deliver right? for now. Yes, and that's a totally reasonable and realistic way to, <laughs> to live. Um, but when you think about, I'll just use HTTP as an example, right? So there's this thing, this, they have a message. The message has a, a, a start line, which has a few elements on it. One is a, one is a method name, which comes from a list, mm -hmm. right? It's not fixed. The next one is a version number. Well, there's an idea. You're going to have to have the version number on every single request, right? And then uh, the next thing is a set of headers, which is really just an array of name value pairs a bunch of which are going to be defined and they can be added to later. There's a whole like, And then you've got a body. Yeah. Okay. Right. And then you then you've got possibly a body which is in a media type which is indicated by one of the headers. In other words, that body could be binary, it could be text, it could be XML, it could be JSON. Everything is an abstraction. Even the security model is an abstraction. So they were really thinking outside the box. Now, it didn't start that way. The very first version wasn't super abstract. Uh, when Tim Berners-Lee got the, one of the first ones working, it was pretty much a fix. There was a, it was always going to be get, because it was a read-only system, and there was no version number on it, and so on and so forth. So the other thing, besides all of these abstractions, is these HTTP people are crazy, because they make sure that the very first HTML document from 1983 still works today on the internet. So they committed to long-term compatibility. Wow, I hadn't decades and decades of compatibility. So you go you can go I think I think in in my I think it was in one of my my other books. I think it was in the client book or it was in the book that Leonard and I did on on RESTful APIs. We found the one of the first HTML documents and it still works. Wow. So that that's really that's really how you build for the future. You level up a little bit. You think about abstractions, and some of that happens over time, and you commit to long-term compatibility. And that's an easy model, but it's super hard to do. It's it's a it's an additive process, is also what you're saying. I mean, I have a vague memory yeah. of '93, '94. You know, sitting in college and learning HTML, and I think. I think I got excited when the image tag was released, something like that. Oh yeah, that, I mean, yeah, because it wasn't originally in there. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, you know, yeah. oh wow, now we can have pictures on here. This is incredible. This changes yeah. everything. Oh man. What? Well, that, there's a that's a great little story. Mark Andreessen, the investment. Mark Andreessen. Yeah. He was at Champaign Urbana, Illinois, when he came up with the image tag. He defined the image tag. Oh. And uh, <laughs> and. Tim Berners-Lee came to visit because they were building a browser, which eventually became, um, um, not Fiddler, they, I forget which browser it became, but he came to visit, Tim Berners-Lee came to visit, and he saw that, that image thing, and 
uh, Mark thought, oh, he'll be really excited. And, and Tim was real upset. <laughs> There's not going to be any images. We don't need images. So even those of us who sort of create the foundation, we don't always see where this is going to go. How, how was he right? expecting we, there, there will be no in yeah, to put huh? graphs and stuff in there. I mean, I would think like graphs. Yeah, and yeah. Computers. Text. We just we just need text. <laughs> but of course, that's not that's not it, right? Yeah. Oh. So so that's another thing about creating something that lives a long time is you have to be prepared for other people to see a different future and still be supportive. Wow. So okay. Also I'm, not easy. I'm sorry. Also not what. Easy, uh, not easy to do. No. When 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 you create something and then you turn it over to other people and then they start using it in ways you hadn't intended, you might get upset. I mean, it's tough. That's yeah. I mean, we you know we we do see that with our APIs and our data and such, and sometimes they use it for things uh, we didn't plan for. We don't really want them to do that kind of thing. I tell you, I've 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 had a handful of experiences where I've built systems like more you know more complex systems than just a, a website and i'm gone for years and i come back and they're saying hey let me show you blah 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 and i'm saying wait 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 wait, wait. what what was that what did you just do oh well you know you take one of the frabbistines you turn it upside down and then you put it through the translator it works just fine said, really really you know <laughs> they're doing things with stuff that i never would have thought of i don't even know how they're pulling it off right and it's stuff that i created and that's actually for me, for me, that's really fun. That means that's that message, right? Yep. Solving problems that I don't know anything about for people that I've never met. That's that's the embodiment of that experience. It's a rush for me. Ah, that's incredible. Hey, I wanted to break in here real quick and thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support this podcast and help keep it going, please visit compiling.publicgeeking.com forward slash support to find out how. All right, back to the conversation. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to transition a little bit here. This is a rough transition cuz uh I actually still think this is relevant cuz when we're talking about, you know, again, leveraging global reach to solve problems, it's not just solving problems, it's also reaching out, communicating with folks and Yeah. You have a background as a professional musician which um feels very it feels on the surface like it's not connected to your work in um media and uh the internet and uh, all of this and yet i i'm starting to feel just through this conversation that i'm i know i'm wrong about that like there's a distinct connection because <laughs> you're not just communicating via text and data you're communicating via well right. via sound and and all that tell me what do you mean so you're a professional musician what did you play how long give me some details talk to me um so I, I was uh, what, what we would call what we called back in the day a card carrying union musician. Um, I played uh, saxophones, saxophone, clarinets, reeds. Okay. I was never the big star. I was always like the second banana. Uh, in when uh, back in the back in the day, um, <laughs> acts would come to town. Like popular acts uh, would come to come to the city. They wouldn't bring their whole orchestra with them, their whole band, like the singer or the piano player or the, something like that. They would bring a bunch of music pages, and they would hire from the union. They'd go to the union hall, and they say, "We need a tenor sax player, we need a trumpet player, we need a trombone player." And if it was, you know, my turn or my gig, I would show up, and we would play for the people in town. Wow! I also did a lot of recording of uh, jingles back then. You wrote like 
television and radio jingles. So I wrote a lot of radio and television jingles and stuff like that. So I was a, a composer. And I studied composition and music all through college. I don't have any degrees in, in computers or information systems or anything like that. I have degrees in, in uh, music. So yes, there was a whole nother life uh, before, the, before the computer business where I just spent all my time in music all the time. So now, how did that transition happen? What brought you into the technical side of things? Well, I'll tell you what. It's, it's a, it's a made-for-TV story. Um, so uh, I, work, I work seven, uh, eight shows a week, six nights a week uh, as a musician. Uh, and, and all I traveled a lot and so on and so forth. Uh, and one Christmas... Um, I was at my in-laws for Christmas, and my young uh, brother-in-law, he, I think he was like 13 at the time, got a Texas Instruments computer for Christmas. And he was basically unimpressed. Like, ah, this is like a typewriter. I don't, I don't really like that this. That is maddening. And I was like, <laughs> I was like hmm. well, I knew nothing about it either. Like, you know, I'd read about computers. You know, I, I got the idea, I got the basics, but, but, but I'd never curiosity. programmed or anything. <laughs> and here it is. It's got, it's got, you know, simple, basic, basic language and a keyboard. And it was like, you know, you, you plug it into your TV set and a tape recorder. Right. And I'm like, all right. And I'm flipping through pages and you know what I discovered? You can play musical notes. <laughs> The bridge is up, and I am ready. As a matter of fact, you could play up to three, you know, three note chords. Oh, you get the tritone simultaneously. In there. Wow, that was pretty advanced. So you could get all sorts of, you could get all sorts of pretty cool things. So the I spent the weekend programming this computer to play television theme songs because I knew television theme songs was the back of my hand. <laughs> So this was playing, I think in the very first one, No, I don't know if anybody will remember this show, Hill Street Blues. Oh, gosh. Which I really liked the theme to. And I programmed this Texas Instruments computer to play the Hill Street Blues theme, even with the, with the, you know, the tempo changes and all these other things. And I was hooked. At that point, I was hooked. And I realized that I had just spent the last 72 hours hogging my brother-in-law's Christmas present. <laughs> Even if he was interested, even if he was interested in it, I was in the way the entire time. <laughs> so I, I said, oh, this, this could be a problem. And then I, I, that became the launching point for learning more about, I actually went to Radio Shack and bought books on circuitry and all sorts of other things and learned all these other low-level languages, Pascal and uh, um, Assembler and Forth, and, all, and that's what got me started. So that was in the 70s. Wow! Wow! It was in the seventies, like yeah, it could be late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. I'd have to look up the very first. I still have my very first TI computer. I actually have two of them, but I have my very first TI computer over on the shelf. I'll have to look up and see what model number. Wow! I mean, I mean, I, you know, I was there with you. I was my first computer was a TRS eighty. So you know, I had the or actually it wasn't even it's was a TRS eighty clone from Global Computer, but whole other story. Oh yeah. That is, yeah. So now you went to Radio Shack, you bought circuit, you know, books and, and learned all of this. Are you, were you, did you find yourself, but you didn't, you weren't a guitar player. You were, you know, read yeah. instrument. So yeah. were you yeah. trying to figure out, you know, like synthesizing music? Were you trying to figure out like 
signal, well, you know, modification, anything like that? Yeah. So it turns out um, uh, several years earlier, maybe maybe eight years earlier, I had seen a demonstration of the Moog synthesizer mm, yeah. at a at a uh, at a music camp that I was attending. Um. So so I you know I knew that they were there and I knew that electronic music existed. It was pretty popular by that point. I think in the seventies and eighties. I was actually enrolled uh, at my music college in the electronic music course. I did like oh. a year of electronic music. I did one very sort of spacey kind of thing, uh, in, influenced by the movie Forbidden Planet. <laughs> if anybody wants to go back and dig around, nice. the, entire, the entire background score is all just electronic music. Uh, and then I also did one that was a little bit more, uh, you know, sort of classical sounding, inspired by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, which was a group from the uh, 70s that, that would kind of re-perform Bach and other uh, Mussorgsky and other classical pieces on synthesizer devices. So I was kind of learning in there. But all through that, all through that time zone, I, you know, my only real interest in computers was to foster more of my professional music right. career. I used tape loops in, in, my, in my performances. I, I worked a lot as a jazz musician, as an improviser. Matter of fact, I did, I did a talk, I think it was at the Detroit event that you mentioned. I, I did a short talk about how music and dance uh, reflects on application building and hypermedia and all these other things. Uh, so there's, there's, uh, there are a lot of connections in my head between these two things. But I was, I was focused totally on being a full-time musician. I assumed that eventually I'd become a professor, you know, with a corduroy coat with the patches on the, on the elbows and I'd have a pipe and a beard and it would all be fine. It didn't work out that way, no. but that's kind of what, you know, at that point, that's really what I was doing. Wow. That's, I mean, that's fast. So, I mean, like how, hmm, how has this music background informed the work you're doing these days? I mean, I'm assuming you don't become a musician and then just stop playing. I mean, I'm assuming you're still playing at least on the semi-regular. Um, I still play, but just personally. Sure. So, um, what happened is when I when I moved um, away from sort of my musical base, which was in the Detroit area, Michigan, and down to Toledo, I moved to Kentucky. I really uh, focused on. Um, on work life and family life, and that's where computers came in. I knew enough about computers, desktop computers at that point, to be able to contribute. So that became sort of my my primary focus. But I've always thought of computers in this sense of being connected, as we were talking about earlier about what the Patterns book is about. So I've always thought, thought about them as being connected and as um, being sort of the personas are operated by other people. Like, I don't control your server, you don't control my server, yet we interact all the time. How is that working? And that's a lot about how music works, right? how popular music works, how jazz music works. Often we have the same basic uh, contour, we have the same basic music sheet, and they have the same meta information about the chord changes and the rhythms and the beats and the melody, but we each interpret them differently. You can think of the way, the way uh, jazz music and popular music works very often, is it's the the uh, the open API document of the group. <laughs> we all have the same interface, but we all use it to create different things. 
We use it to create the drum line or the bass line or the, the, the piano changes or the trumpet or the guitar or whatever the case may be. But we're all operating on the same meta document. So it's very much the way I think about the way computers work. Or I would like computers to work, <laughs> right? One of, the things I, I, one of the things I love about the web is you can just add a new computer to the internet anytime. You don't have to like call up and say, you know, can you have a crew come over and install a new computer on the internet? No, that's not the way it works. You just open up a machine, stick it on the on the net, and you're set. Nowadays, you don't even have to have a machine. You can just have a virtual. And that's sort of the way a musician shows up, just rocks up onto the stage and say, hey, can I play along? I, I got the same open API document you do. And can we create a space where the web is more like that? Where the We do that really well with documents. We don't yet do that really well with services. And that's really what I've been spending my time trying to do is use the same things I learned from being a collective a musician, collaborative musician, to be a, a collaborative uh, composer, to be a collaborative designer, uh, implementer of computers. Now, I have a tiny, I'm a complete amateur musician background. I've played with groups before but i'm not very good at it i'm just yeah, basically a quarter right yeah i got guitars behind me it doesn't mean anything though it makes me look cool but it doesn't actually like always kind of feel like a little bit of a poser i'm still i'm you know i'm i'm in my late 40s and i'm still learning right and but like yeah i've always this idea of hopping on stage with a bunch of folks and just being able to jump in no and know how to jump in and know what to play how to interpret that like, what are the baseline skills to develop to be able to do that from your perspective? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, a flip answer that I learned from reading about the life of a very uh, successful and, and famous jazz musician, Charlie Parker. Yeah. Somebody asked him how he was so good, how he could play so fast and, and play so many tunes and know all this stuff. And he said, well, it's really pretty easy. The first thing is you got to learn everything there is to know about your instrument. And then you have to forget it. <laughs> so what happens, what happens with these musicians that can come up on stage, they're probably, you're probably playing a tune they know, mm -hmm. right? Oh, I know this tune. So already they know, and they've practiced that tune. So they know that tune. And they may even know that you're doing... Uh, you know, you're doing the Beatles version of that tune, or you're doing the the uh, you know Lady Gaga version of that tune, or the Lizzo version of that tune. So they know how Lizzo did it, and when she was playing the flute, she did blah 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 blah. So they know that flute part. So knowing is really a powerful way to become a collaborator, to be able to to interact with others. And then there's you know all sorts of new creative sparks. Like not only do you do it the way Lady Gaga did it. But you've got your own little, you know, sort of way of thinking about it. So you add that, and then somebody else says, man, I really love the way Rob did that. Let me copy that. And they've got the ear, and they play the same thing you did. So that's kind of what happens in, in music very often, is people are literally in real time streaming all of these ideas at once, mm -hmm. following the same basic set of rules. And that's how we get the music we got. So go in there and, and just learn to play the music that you like to play the way you like to do it. And then when you see the opportunity, play that music with, with, yeah. with the rest of the group. That's, yep, yep. Okay. To me, 
Yeah, to me, uh, I can tell you right now, I still practice, I have a, a MIDI device, a MIDI saxophone that looks like a soprano sax, but it's a little bit, uh, I think it's a little bit larger. Uh, and I still, I still play that every once in a while, and I play that to backing tracks on YouTube, mm, oh. right? So the songs that I know and the changes, so I'm not alone. But of course, to me, that's only half the story. I don't have a community of musicians that I collaborate with anymore. It's the collaboration that really gives me the, the jazz, that really gives me the buzz. Mm -hmm. It's not just sitting by myself and playing, it's playing with others. And that's, that's, that's a rare thing. And I don't get to do that uh, anymore, which sometimes bugs me. But, you know, the other thing is uh, I, I am living the, the adage, the mind is willing, but the flesh is weak. <laughs> I, I know how this tune goes. And I know how this, like, this, you know, solo, this riff goes. I can't, I can't get these fingers to do that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Trying to connect so the I have to learn to, Yes, I, I have to, to learn to... Uh, uh, learn to enjoy it in other ways. In other ways, be usually being slower tempo. <laughs> <laughs> now, are you have have you spread this love of uh, music performance to other members of your family? Are you able to uh, you know jam with them at any point, or is this you know? Your there's 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 been a little of that. So my wife was also a music major. She was a uh, performance major. I was a composition major. So she's a much more accomplished player than I. So we used to do things together quite a bit. Uh, each of my uh, children have learned to play some kind of music um, simply because we kind of said you should, you should learn at least, at least so that you could sort of read music and know rhythm and stuff like that. Uh, and so they've each done that. And my son is actually, uh, he wanted to play drums. I told him he couldn't play drums. So he learned <laughs> something else. You can't just bang on things. He, but he has a brilliant rhythmic sense. So he actually has learned to play keyboards, and he's also learning to play guitar, sort of like you. Nice. Uh, and uh, and my youngest played uh, piano, and my oldest played French horn, and my son played trombone. So yeah, so there's some stuff around. But I think of this as even just the ability to sing, just the ability to to enjoy a, a musical performance, gets you to a different part of your brain, a different sure. space. The way our brains work on on audio is different than in text. Or even in video, so if you can stimulate that part, I think I think that's really important. I mean, I hate I hate to be all techie nerdy about this, but I do feel that because I used to, you know, I play guitar mostly. I sang, I sang for a very very long time. Um, very cool, very that, cool. That ability in a choir to, you know, kind of tune in to where you're supposed to be, and then to hear yourself harmonizing with everybody else and adjusting it, like yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, and like I said, I hate to be a techie nerd about this, but it always kind of reminded me of like the handshake um, of an old modem. You know, you have to kind of align every <laughs> all the sounds are coming together. Yep. You can hear them finally. Oh, and then once they are together, it shuts off. Yep. And you've got the data exchange, and yep. there's some kind of data exchange happening among musicians when they're collaborating that way oh, as yeah. well, especially in jazz. Because as you say, yep. you've got to go up there yep. and hear what they're playing and then adapt to that. You don't want to go up and play the Lizzo yep. version when they're playing the Beatles version. It's not necessarily, unless you can that's somehow right. marry the two, right? Yeah, no, but that's exactly right. So that's that abstraction that we were talking yeah. about earlier, right? Is that you're thinking about it in the sense of how are we connecting? How are we collaborating? How are we sharing? And what are the cues and signals? So I, in my in my way of thinking about these things, um, these are all ways, whether it's hypermedia or computer systems or 
or, or music or even you know movies or whatever these are all ways to communicate with each other and um, the more ways that you can uh, enjoy in some kind of way I think the better off we all are and and I particularly um, over the last couple of years because of you know lockdowns and so on and so forth have been missing the element of live yeah. performance yeah. Um, our family was just talking about we don't go to enough plays anymore we don't go to enough plays or musicals or things like that my daughter just went to one with some friends uh, and it reminds me but you know I really used to enjoy that very much we should do more of that kind of interaction oh. so it's all sort of to me it's all of the same general idea I mean, it's, you know, we, we talked at length about the history of, you know, hypermedia and, and, and this communication. Like, at the end of the day, it kind of comes back to one of the principles I always follow. There's always a human at the other end, right? No matter whether we're talking about technology, at some point, it's always going to land back with a human. And this idea of communicating and exchanging information and aligning, like, whether it's music, whether it's having a conversation, whether it's technology, it's so, we think of it as being so technological when we're talking about APIs, but it's so deeply human. It's such a human need to be understood and to make sure that information is there through whatever methodology we have. And it's, it's almost like, you know, APIs and computers are just the newest way to do it. Yes. And, and, and if you think about it, APIs are just, yeah, the newest explanation for doing it, right? Yeah. We've been doing it. We always do it. It's one of the things that makes us unique on the planet is that with that social hierarchy, we have a, you know, a vast social ability to support a vast social network. And there are lots of powerful advantages to that. Lots of challenges, but lots of advantages. And the arts, I think, is a great way to create shared understanding on a nonverbal level. And that's what music and art, you know, any artistic endeavor video and, and all that kind of stuff so i love any time i get a chance to do that and anytime i get a chance to bring that ethos to the virtual world mm. i think it's a plus oh it's amazing this has been a fantastic conversation thank you so much mike pitch your That's thing fine. what do you want to promote today what is what are you passionate well, about that you this, want to make sure this, this is along along this yes, this is along a similar lines we were talking about. One of the things I do is I I uh I do a lot of I do some volunteering for a food pantry mm. uh, and deliver food to people who can't get out. And I would you know, I would encourage anyone if you if you're looking for a way to connect with people, to collaborate with people and, and do some kind of connection, food pantries and food services are a great way to do it. I work uh, for a local organization. But there are a couple of national organizations that I think do a really good job. One is called Feeding America, uh, and I think we'll we'll be able to include It'll the be, link. Everything uh, will be in the show America. notes, absolutely. Yep. Um, they do a really good job. They can actually help you find a local food pantry in your area. Uh, world Central Kitchens uh, is a great uh, source as well. They go around the world. They're kind of like uh, kitchens without borders. They're like doctors <laughs> without borders, but they're, but they're food. And, and really... Food is food is something that that everyone needs, and I like dealing I like dealing in, in the food side because it's not just passing of cash; it's this opportunity to connect directly yeah. uh, and to see how it works. So there there are lots of other things, but I really encourage people uh, to get involved. Think about getting involved in the food pantry, even if it's just working at the food pantry to sort things or to help uh, take care of donations or to deliver directly. There's lots and lots of things you can do. So. Uh, fe uh, feeding America and World Central Kitchens uh, and lots of your local food pantries. I would encourage you to get involved in that. 
All the all the links to those will be in the uh, show notes. So uh, we'll make sure go out there and join. I'm I. That we talked about this before. I'm a member of the local. Well, we have a food bank here in Contra Costa County that you know I donate to, and we've worked yep. out occasionally. But um, I, I, I'm inspired to want to get a little bit more connected, and that's probably the best way to go do it. Well, you know, part of the challenge is these things called food deserts, right, or food insecurity. It isn't yeah. just it isn't just people who are poor. It's people who live in a neighborhood where there's no food nearby if they don't have a vehicle or if they they can't afford public transportation or it's not convenient. It makes it really, really hard for people. Mm -hmm. And other times it's just people who just need a little help, just need a little extra every once in a while. Um, I think, I I forget the number, it's something like, I want to say 120 million households in the United States uh, experience some form of food insecurity. That's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of insecurity and that affects the way children behave at school or their ability to learn or whether, whether or not you can make it to work on time. So there's lots and lots of that, and it's close to like 800 million, according to the uh, UN, uh, 800 million around the world experience some kind of insecurity, and a lot of times that's very devastating uh, poverty and starvation. But it goes all the way, you know, the, runs the full gamut. So there are lots of places to be involved, and I would encourage people to get started. That's a great one. Thank you so much again. Uh, I really appreciate it, and uh, hey, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Great to talk with you, Rob, and I look forward to the next time as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. See what I mean? I always walk away from a conversation with Mike fascinated and inspired to get out to learn more. Um, you know, as we were talking, I had one more question that I wanted to ask, but I, I wasn't sure if he'd be able to answer it. And you know, or if he was allowed to answer it, I suppose. And fortunately, uh, he said absolutely. So when we were done recording, I turned it back on and went ahead and asked this question. He's the author of many books for O'Reilly. You probably have many O'Reilly books with the animals uh, on the covers in your library if you're a developer. So I just had one more question I knew he could answer. So here's a bonus. You know, you, you've written so often for O'Reilly. I'm not sure how much we can talk about this. Which is why I've waited okay. to ask. You've worked, you've written okay. so many books for O'Reilly. Um, I'm dying to find out the animal on the cover of the restful uh, web API patterns. First of all, what animal is that? Do you know? Oh, I don't even know. Can you show me? Oh, um, it's it. They're written at the back of the book. Oh, uh, I, I, I did know this. I did know this. I have, I have, I have, uh, there should be a little thing, a colophon. Colophon. Ah, oh, it's a grand, grandidier's mongoose. Galactic grandidieri. Yeah, that's a dangerous critter. If you're a, that is a mean critter. A mongoose will uh, kill a snake. Yep. Will kill like a venomous snake. Cobras. So yeah, so we don't get to pick the creatures that appear on the covers. Oh, you have no input on that's, this. No, we have no input whatsoever. Oh. Um, I'm pretty sure there's a method to the madness. Certain kinds of books get reptiles and certain kinds of books may get mammals or something like that but i'm not really sure um i've had i've had mixed uh feelings about the covers that i've been granted uh <laughs> in the o'reilly world um there was a the book uh restful web apis with leonard richardson leonard really wrote that book as i i contributed to it uh we got a panda uh a sloth no we got a sloth i remember the sloth and i hated the sloth i said sloth they're slow they they don't they don't 
they don't do much. And of course, Leonard loves the slots. So that's that story. And then for the microservices architecture book that I did with um, the API Academy team, and that was, I think it was the first book the API Academy team put out, we had um, this sort of mollusk creature that had no face. <laughs> it was it was just like a you know like the blob that would be inside the shell of a you know snail or something a nautilus like or something and i i hated that and actually got feedback from some people that they couldn't pick the book up it was so creepy oh it was so weird looking it broke the rule there was no face it's making oh tryptophobia so, but, yeah oh. so everybody has it but it's it's an incredible thing and by the way the reason that started it started by listing, they were using creatures that were endangered. Oh. That was sort of the impetus for putting them on the cover uh, to list uh, creatures that needed some attention, that needed some attention in the world. So that was, uh, it was, a, it was a, an artist working for O'Reilly, and they were struggling to figure out, you know, what they're going to do about covers and stuff like that. And this, she came up with this notion of using these drawings, sort of like these old school 1800s type drawings for new modern technology books. And uh, that's how I got started. And I think the, the Unix, Linux, Unix handbook, I don't remember which one they did first, was the Tarsier. It's this, you know, Oh, the Tarsier, yes. Wide, yeah, and that became the mascot for O'Reilly in general right. oh, because, that's of, because of the start of that book series. So my yeah. O'Reilly so Zoo is it, filled it, with endangered animals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, something like that. I don't, you know, I don't know if it's st if that's still the the rule or, or you know, with the driving force. But yeah, because they have thousands and thousands of books. I don't know where they come up with all of these things. Oh, that's fascinating. That was the idea. Oh, that's a good one. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate you sharing that one. <laughs> thank you again, Mike, for your time and generosity. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you for listening and inviting us to hang out between your ears. We'll see you next time. The Compiling Podcast is produced, written, published, hosted, and copyrighted by Rob Sisweta. All opinions expressed belong to the individuals expressing them and not necessarily the organizations to which they belong. To find show notes and listen to additional episodes, please visit compiling.publicgeeking.com. Talk to you soon.